for the next couple weeks, we're going to be doing kind of uh, a couple just selections from uh, Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and I've heard a, a good illustration kind of of what the Sermon on the Mount is. If you've seen uh, the show Stranger Things, uh, it came out a while ago, so I'm going to spoil it for you. Uh, you've had a couple years now. I'm not sad. Um, but so basically in the first season, there's this, this kid who falls into this realm that they call the Upside Down. And it's everything, it's just like this kind of normal world that we live in, except everything is decaying and everything is scary. And his friends are trying to pull him out of this upside down world to live in the right side up world. Uh, What Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he is trying to convince us that we are all actually living in the upside down. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he is pulling us out into the right side up world. That's what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount and today we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, 13 through 16. So if you have a Bible or app, uh, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, and this passage comes to us kind of on the heels of Jesus describing what sort of person is going to live in this right-side-up right kingdom that he is making. Uh, this sort of person is going to be one who is poor in spirit, one who is characterized by mourning, Uh, by being meek, by hungering and thirsting for righteousness, by being merciful, by being pure in heart, and by being a peacemaker. And in a very sobering point, Jesus says, if you are this sort of person, the world is going to react very negatively to you. So Jesus is describing this sort of kind of like softer person in the world, and he's saying, if you're this sort of person, things are going to go poorly for you. You're going to experience profound pushback. And so before I read this passage, I just want to ask you, okay, when you're in a situation like that and you're told you're going to experience profound pushback, you're heading towards suffering and it will be unjust. People are just going to not like you for the fact that you're you. What is your gut response to that? Is it easier to stay engaged or is it easier to withdraw? So keep that in mind as we read this passage of Scripture, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. These are Jesus' words. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pause before we get started and pray together. Um, It's our practice at Redeemer to take a couple moments in silence to kind of prepare our hearts for the preaching of the word. Uh, And so I would just ask you to take a couple moments uh, in silence, and then I will pray and we can get started. So let's go to the Lord together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are here and we long to hear from you. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes uh, and help us to see uh, the world as it truly is. 
Um, Lord, would you convince us more thoroughly that the way of Jesus is uh, the good life? So, Lord, will you send your spirit, open up our eyes, and help us to see you and ourselves more clearly. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, when, I was, when I had just recently graduated college, uh, I worked in campus ministry like I still do now, but I worked as an intern uh, for a campus ministry at the University of Kentucky. And uh, there was a student who got involved with our ministry uh, who um, really didn't have much background with Christianity, and he kind of started, we started meeting up for coffee every now and again and just kind of talking through the basics of the faith. Uh, and he actually started to, to grow a lot. He started to grow in his understanding of what uh, Christianity is, what the gospel is. Uh, but one thing I noticed about him is he would always show up to things that we did a little bit late and then leave a little bit early. Uh, he would always show up like kind of when the time for socializing was done and he would hightail it out of there before socializing would happen. Some of you uh, might be able to relate to that tendency where my introvert's at. I am one of you as well. Um, but he would just show up and leave. And my campus minister encouraged me. He's like, okay, you should go ask him about that, uh, which I didn't want to do, but I did because he told me to. And so when we were meeting together, I asked him like, hey man, like I've just noticed you kind of, you're showing up late, you're leaving early, like what's going on? Uh, and he's like, I just, I don't want to interact with people. I was like, well, behold an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Um, I said, why not? Why do you not want to talk to people? And he's like, well, I, I just hate small talk. He's like, I hate it. Like, what's the point? Like, I'm just supposed to go up to someone like, oh, nice sweater. Like, I don't care about their sweater. Why do we do small talk? Why do I have to talk, about, talk to people about how their day is? It just seems so pointless. I wonder if that's where we're at coming in here today as we think about the church. I wonder if we're kind of in this place of like, what's the point? What are we doing here? Do we just show up? Do we just find the people in this room to be lovely people and we just want to spend time with them? I wonder if we've ever asked this question about the church, like, what's the point? And this passage that we're looking at today, Jesus is meeting us in our kind of questioning of our purpose in this world, and he's giving us a clear way forward. He's speaking to his followers, and he's giving a clear vision of the purpose of following him in the world. And so maybe you're here, and you're a Christian, and you have been for a long time, maybe your whole life, uh, and you're maybe starting to, to kind of ask the natural question of, like, it, like is this still, like, is this working like, am I, am I just showing up because I just am showing up, or is there something actually happening here? Does this serve some broader purpose? Or maybe you're a Christian, and you're starting to get maybe a little bit disillusioned with the whole church thing. Or maybe you're here, and, and you're not a Christian, and you enjoy the people. You, you might like coming to church, but there's a little bit of you that's like, like, what, what are we doing here? So that's the question I want to ask. I just want to ask that directly. Like, like what are we doing here? What's the point of the church? What is the point? And Jesus, in this passage, gives us two images that I think kind of answer this question. He tells us that as followers of Jesus, we are salt and we are light. We are salt and we are light. And so we're just going to kind of handle this in two headings. So Jesus tells us that our purpose here, what we're doing here, is that we are a preserving presence and an illuminating presence. So a preserving presence and an illuminating presence. So let's consider what Jesus means by us being a preserving presence. At the beginning of this passage, Jesus says this, 
you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Uh, Jesus begins kind of this purpose statement for his people in the world with an indicative statement, not an imperative. He says, by virtue of relationship with me, this is who you are. He doesn't say this is what you must do. He says, this is who you are. You are salt of the earth. What, what does it mean to be salt of the earth? Uh, we might have said that. Generally, that's what we say to refer to someone who's just kind of like a good person. Like, they're salt of the earth. Uh, what, what would that have meant to the original audience, salt of the earth? Uh, salt in Jesus' day uh, was used primarily as a preservative. It was used to flavor things maybe secondarily, but it was used primarily to preserve things because they didn't have refrigeration in Jesus' day. So salt would be kind of rubbed into fish or meat, and it would preserve it. The salt on the outside would extract the decay out of the meat and kind of put it at a point to where it had an extremely long shelf life. So Jesus here is kind of likening his followers to this preserving presence of salt. It's like in the same way that salt is kind of packed on the outside of meat in order to preserve it, Jesus' followers are are kind of packed onto this world to be a preserving presence presence. But what makes us a preserving presence? What makes the church a preserving presence? Jesus goes on at the end of verse 13. He says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out. Uh, Maybe you know this, but salt is a, a very stable compound, so our modern salt will never lose its saltiness. Uh, So you might be wondering what Jesus is saying here. Well, in Jesus' day, salt was different. We didn't have, uh, they didn't have kind of like the refineries that we had. So the salt that they had was kind of gathered by like off of rocks by the sea. So it was an impure salt. So there was such a thing as something that looked exactly like salt, but had no saltiness to it. It had no taste. It was worthless. What is Jesus' point here? He is saying that the church, his people, like salt, we need to have a a contrast to us in order to be worth anything in this world. There needs to be, if I can say it this way, there needs to be kind of a bite to our presence. There needs to be a saltiness. You see, salt is useless when it loses its distinctive properties. It's useless. So the church is a preserving presence because of our contrast from the world. And what might this look like? What might it look like to be a a contrast community? There have been plenty of great examples and and poor examples, I would say, throughout church history. But but one that comes to mind, um, there was this thing in the third century, there was a huge uh, pandemic, uh, something that we're unfortunately familiar with. Uh, But this one makes COVID-19 look pretty small. Uh, This is called, it's referred to as the plague of Cyprian. Cyprian was a Christian leader at the time, and he's the primary source for what we know about this. They're not saying that Cyprian caused this plague. He was just, he happened to be the guy who wrote about it. So this plague, it, it lasted roughly 12 years, and it was something like Ebola, um, such that if you got it, you were pretty much 100% certain like you're going to die. And as you can imagine, uh, the social fabric started to deteriorate when this sort of thing is going on for 12 years at a time. Uh, It was said that the death toll was up to 5,000 people per day sometimes. And so what people would do is when someone starts to show any sort of sign of having this sickness, they would just put them out in the street. 
So just imagine the street is just littered with the dead and dying. And the church, this is the third century, the church is relatively young. What, what does the church do with this? Uh, there is a Roman emperor named Julian, who a hundred years after this is reflecting on what the Christians did, how they responded to this plague. He says, when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by our priests, that is the pagan priests, then I think the impious Galileans, which is what he called Christians, observed this fact and devoted themselves to caring for them. They supported not only their poor, but ours as well. So in the face of very real death and decay, Christian people were known for running straight towards it in the name of Jesus. Uh, and this, this was so effective such that it's estimated in cities where there was a significantly like, high Christian population, the death toll was about half that of other cities. That's the sort of difference that Christians as a pre- preserving presence can make. So in the face of death and decay, these early Christians, they, they preserved. They were a preserving presence. Uh, what might it look like for us to do this sort of thing today? How can we be a preserving presence in the community that God has called us to? I think maybe the best way to think about this is like, think about as a community, where do we see decay? Where do we see decay in Lincoln? Where do we see it around us? I think, I think a big one for us um, in our world, in our city, uh, it's, it's increasingly hard for there to be any sort of difference or contrast without there being like a rupture in relationship. Uh, we, we're kind of like retreating into more and more homogenous communities. What if in the face of that, the church was a community of grace? In the face of that, the church was a place where difference could coexist without leading to decay. Uh, my students who are here will recognize this quote because I love it, but y'all are just going to have to bear with me. Uh, Anthony Bourdain, who was a kind of highbrow chef, once went to Waffle House, which is a very lowbrow restaurant, if you've ever been there, from the South. And this is how he described it. He said, Waffle House is an irony-free zone where everything is beautiful and nothing hurts. Where everybody, regardless of race, creed, color, or degree of inebriation, is welcomed. It's warm yellow glow, a beacon of hope and salvation, inviting the hungry, the lost, all across the South to come inside. A place of safety and nourishment. It never closes. It is always faithful, always there for you. I mean, what a beautiful description, right? And what I want to submit to you is that that is what the church should be. That is what the church should be. A place where everybody, regardless of race, creed, color, degree of inebriation, is welcomed. A place where you can, you can come in and be welcomed. A place where we can absorb things that cannot be absorbed in other communities. A place where we can relate to each other across difference. So that's as a community, but what about us as individuals? Consider where God has placed you, whether it's your workplace or a workout group or a homeschool group or something that you're involved in. What sort of things can you absorb in Jesus' name that other people can't? Think about the difficult person that God puts in your path. Or what about the hurting person that you know it's going to be a two-hour-long conversation of them talking about what has hurt them? Or think about folks who who might not know Jesus. Uh, In conversation with them, can you allow them to tell you everything that they think is wrong with the church and sit there and take it in Jesus' name? Can you do that? That's what it means to be salt. 
It's what it means to be a preserving presence. So Jesus tells us we are preserving presence in the world. But second, he tells us that we are an illuminating presence in the world. If you would look with me to verse 14. Uh, Jesus there says, you are the light of the world. Again, this is an indicative, not an imperative. This is Jesus telling us who we are by virtue of relationship with him. And so in our day, as in Jesus' day, light, uh, it illuminates. It, It reveals that which was hidden in darkness. It lights up the world. But unlike our day, in Jesus' day, light was a lot harder to come by. Light was a lot harder to come by. And his audience would have been familiar with complete and total darkness. Some of you who might be from rural Nebraska, you know what this feels like. Complete and total darkness. And then Jesus then calls his people. He, he kind of pushes the metaphor further. He says, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden and a lamp which lights a house, which of course is where we get our song, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. See, what makes Christians an illuminating presence? What makes us a light? What is it? I think Jesus tells us at the end of verse 16. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So there is an undeniably public aspect of being a Christian. That that the way that we live in society, it's going to be public. People are going to see it. But again, Jesus is calling out here a contrast, a difference, a distinctiveness to his people. And in calling his disciples the light of the world, Jesus is echoing the Old Testament. The Old Testament talks about uh, the church. It talks about the church being a light to the nations. It talks about the church being the most visible, clear example of who God is in the world. Such that if someone walks into the church, they should have the best possible picture of what God looks like. That's what we're supposed to be. That's how Christians are a light to the world. Uh, But even as I'm saying this, you know, Jesus calling us a light to the world, uh, the church supposed to be kind of like the picture of where you can see God. Uh, It's hard for me not to just think of all of the uh, holes in what I just said. Uh, Namely, the fact that the church hasn't been this, has it? We've missed the boat. What about the fact that uh, the church a lot of times when we talk about it, it's more readily associated with things like abuse of power than laying that power down. It's more readily associated with things like cover-ups than transparency. Uh, It's more readily associated with things like uh, racism and exclusion than it is inclusion. See, the church has often chosen power over sacrifice. The church has often chosen influence over service. It's often chosen politics over people. So the question needs to be asked, how in the world can we be a light in the face of these realities? How? Uh, There's a missiologist named uh, Leslie Newbegin. Uh, I put his quote on the, uh, the liturgy email that went out. Uh, But he was reflecting on this question in this book that he wrote, uh, I think it's called The The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. And he's reflecting on how someone could possibly come to believe that the gospel, the cross of Christ, is the center of everything, that it's convincing. And what he says is this. Um, He says, the only answer, 
the only way that people can come to believe that the gospel is intelligible is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. The only way that the gospel can make sense is in the context of a congregation of people who believe it and live by it. Not another book, not a conference, not a podcast, a congregation of people who believe and live the gospel. How can we do that? How can we believe and live the gospel? Uh, About um, nine years ago, when my wife Molly and I were dating, uh, we were dating long distance for a little bit, and Molly came to visit uh, my family in Moxville, North Carolina, which is where I'm from, which you've never heard of, uh, which means that there's really nothing to do there. What you do in Moxville, North Carolina, is you go out to eat at one of three restaurants. So that's what we were doing. Uh, So Molly and I went out to eat with my parents, uh, and we were kind of interacting, just kind of having a little bit of a back and forth. Something you need to know about my family, uh, you got to roll with the punches in my family. Um, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of jokes made at people's expenses, uh, which might explain why I am the way that I am. Um, but for me, it's just kind of so normal. I just know how to roll with it. Uh, so at one point in the dinner, my dad made some joke at my expense. I don't actually remember what it was. Uh, but I, you know, it didn't really sting that bad to me. It just kind of rolled off my back. Uh, the end of the dinner, Molly and I get in the car to head home, and I get a phone call from my dad. Um, and my dad, when I pick up the phone, uh, immediately I can tell there's something weird going on um, because he's just kind of beating around the bush. I'm like, okay, dad, like, what's going on? And he's like, son, I can't stop thinking about what I said about you in front of Molly. Like, I should not have made that joke. That was not okay. I shouldn't have said that, and I'm so sorry. Can you forgive me? Listen, I don't remember what my dad said to me, but I do remember that he humbled himself and repented. I remember that he came to me. And and as I look back at my story, that's like a bright and blinding light shining out of it. Because there's no reason that he should have done that other than that Jesus Christ died and was raised from the grave. Because that's not fundamentally who my dad is. But that is who he is in Jesus. See, there are lots of ways that I think people, like followers of Jesus, that we can be a light in our culture. But I do think that repentance is the primary way in this moment. We need to be people who are known for owning our failure people who are known for owning our failure as a community. What, what if the church was the first to admit our failure? What if we were the first ones to, to say, you know what, you're right, and I'm sorry, when people bring up past injustices? What if we were the first ones to say, what do I need to do to make this right? Rather than doubling down and trying to protect our own brand. Why would we do that? I mean, why would we do something crazy like this? Because in doing this, we point beyond ourselves to a God of mercy and forgiveness. The church can become a place that, that willingly participates in the death of repentance because we believe in resurrection life. We're not afraid of admitting the ways that we're wrong because we expect that through that, God is going to bring something new, something that wouldn't have existed beforehand because that's how good he is. In a time where we are so familiar with the powerful denying any sort of wrongdoing when confronted, what if, as a contrast community, the church, when confronted, admitted it? What if we admitted it? What if we didn't fear the death of admitting we were wrong? What if we actually believed in resurrection life? 
But think about it as individuals too. Like when we can be okay with ourselves in the midst of failure, when we can go to someone and humble ourselves and say, I'm so sorry for what I said, or conversely, when we can go to someone and say, what you said was not okay and it hurt me, when we can do that sort of thing, we testify to the reality of a God who relates to us by grace and not our own moral perfection. We testify to the love of God who does not abandon us when we don't act lovely. We introduce what I would call like a creative disruption into the world. This creative disruption that, that, that kind of points out that there is a world where our embarrassing failures, they don't have to destroy us, but instead they can draw us closer together. We can give off a scent of resurrection life. A scent that, that, that Jesus promises. It says, when they see your good works, they will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So let's think back to our original question. Question like, what are we doing here exactly? What's the point of this? Uh, we've seen that the church, according to Jesus, is salt, a preserving presence in the world. And the church is light, an illuminating presence in the world. And I just want to reiterate something that, that I've already said a couple times, but, but I think we, we forget it, so I just want to point it out. Being salt and light is not a to-do list. It is not something that you do in order to earn God's affection. It's something that you are because you already have God's affection in Christ. If you're a Christian, being salt and light, it is fundamentally a part of who you are and more and more a part of who you're becoming. How does this work? So there was a time in my life about nine years ago where I had on my wall a flag that said Dale Earnhardt, the intimidator. And it was my prized possession. I still love it. It's in my garage now. But a year later, after that, the primary feature on my wall was a gallery wall and calligraphy. And I loved it. What changed? What changed? What changed was I got married to Molly. I got married to Molly, and I became like the one that I loved. It wasn't just that I begrudgingly said, yeah, maybe let's not put up the Dale Earnhardt thing. I was like, even a year later, I was like, wow, why in the world would I have ever thought that was a good idea to put a Dale Earnhardt flag on my wall? Because I got near to Molly. I, I, I loved her. I, I became close to her. I was united to her in marriage. I became like her. And the same is true of our relationship with Jesus. When we place our faith in Jesus, we are justified. We are declared righteous in him. And not only that, we are united with him such that whatever is true of him becomes true of us. And when God looks at us, that means that he does not deal with us according to our sin or according to our own unrighteousness, but according to the righteousness of Jesus. And so when we look at Jesus, we see the ultimate preserving presence. Jesus, he, he, was, he was the ultimate salt of the earth. He had everything. The Bible tells us he, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself, becoming a servant. Jesus, like salt, he, he came down so close to the earth that it was uncomfortable and was kind of ground into it as a preserving presence. And when we get close to him, by his grace, we become that too. And Jesus, he, he's the ultimate illuminating presence, the light of the world who, who came down into darkness in order to make us children of light. He did not count 
his place with God as something to be hoarded, like I said, but instead shared it with us and invites us into the light. The Bible tells us we were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And by his spirit, he applies the work of Jesus to us so that we can be more and more this illuminating presence in the world. So if you are a Christian, I just want to tell you, this is who you are. You are salt and light. This is who we are together as a community. We are salt and light. And if you're here and, and, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or, or you're not sure, I just want to ask you, just, just think back to your life for maybe the past month. Think about the, the decay that you see. Think about the darkness that you see. And I want to ask you, do you want to be a part of, of fixing that? Jesus invites you to. He wants to give you himself and to give you his community, the church, to walk alongside you. And that is an open invitation. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, that you have given us your word, um, Lord, and that your word tells us who we are, or that we are salt and light. Uh, I know, for me, I am so tempted to look uh, to myself and the ways that I fail um, to contradict what you say to be true. Uh, but Lord, I pray that you would humble me, that you would humble my friends here, and, and that by your spirit you would help us to embrace who it is that you say we are. Um, Lord, may we draw near to you, and in drawing near, may we be made more like you. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.